I don't know how many people, how many people do New Year's resolutions? I shouldn't raise my hand. Raise your hand. You see some people do New Year's resolutions. That's really good. I don't do that. I don't know why. Um, I don't know why that is. But we, in our gospel group this week, we met, and, and Jeremy, who was up here playing the guitar, and he leads the group, he sort of asked us, okay, who makes the New Year's resolutions? And we were talking about things we were hoping for, and things that are coming up, maybe things that we're excited for. Uh, but I also like to look back on what did I learn in the last year. And I don't know about you, sometimes I think about the calendar year and I go, well, it's kind of arbitrary, right? It's really just a calendar. I guess maybe it's a tax thing, right? We don't have to pay taxes on the last year anymore. It's all new taxes. But other than that, like students and uh, seasons and all these other things, they don't really shift at this point. It's just sort of a calendar thing. But... I like to look back and I take notes in, in my quiet times and in my journaling and as I am uh, preparing teachings and um, all those sort of things. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to look back on my journals and my notes and see what did I learn in 2018. And as I did that, I realized, wow, there's a few things I learned about church. You know, I learned a lot of different things. Um, and so I could have talked about a lot of different things. But I thought, hey, you know what, as I reviewed these notes... I thought I would share them because at some point learning is useless unless we have a way to apply it, right? And I thought, well, I'm going to take what I learned and it's my goal, maybe my resolution to take things I learned in 2018 and apply them. And my hope is we as a church would take some of these things and apply them to our church in 2019 and beyond, right? So I got five things, five points. That's all you got to suffer through this morning is five of my points. Five things I learned in 2018, about church. So here we go. Here's the first one. Our first one is this, is that our pursuit as a church, our pursuit must be Jesus. Our pursuit must be Jesus. You see that verse there? This was a verse that came out of one of my quiet times as I was reading in Matthew 14. And when Jesus heard this, there was this thing going on. He heard this. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. You go, well, that's just kind of a simple story verse. What is there? Well, what is, what is there to notice about this verse? Well, first, I think we can realize when we think about Jesus, and you read the Gospels, and you say, what, what is Jesus? What's going on with him? He, he spoke really profound words. Like, everything he said was really profound, right? He told parables. He told stories. He had statements of great theology. He shared deep truth. He was a prophet and gave prophecy. Sometimes he would do this for an individual, and sometimes he would do it for thousands of people, and everything in between. And so his words affected many, many people. And so what we see here, as I like in the second part of the verse, is that people followed him. People followed Jesus, and they followed him because of, really, what he said. Now, he was performing miracles, of course, too, but he was backing up his miracles with his words. And so where he went, they followed. But they didn't just follow him, did they? What does it say? Where was he? He was in a desolate place. Like, who wants to go to a desolate place, right? Like, oh, I'll go to a desolate place. Jesus was so profound and so amazing, they said, we're going to follow him to a desolate place. You know, and it's not as if they planned it out. They weren't like, oh, well, you know, Jesus is going to a desolate place. So let's get our camping supplies. Let's get a couple days worth of food and some toiletries. And we'll order some porta potties to be there because there's a whole bunch of us going. Or any. They didn't do that. They were just like, hey, Jesus is over there. Oh, it's a desolate place. Whatever. It's Jesus. Let's go. 
Right? And so this verse leads into one of the stories where they all show up and they're all really hungry and he's taught. The disciples are like, what are you going to do? And he says, well, let's feed them, right? And so he feeds the masses. Like, they didn't even show up with food. It was kind of reckless, wasn't it? Can you imagine doing something like that? Like, we just don't have a very reckless world, a very reckless culture. And I think that spills over that lack of recklessness. You know, I don't want to say, oh, go be reckless necessarily, but that lack of recklessness really spills over into following Jesus in America, doesn't it? What do I mean by that? I think for so many people, when they say, okay, I'm an American and I'm going to follow Jesus, there's just not this sense of recklessness. And they go, okay, I'm going to have some minimum requirements. And I thought of a few, and I'll put them up here on the screen. There's probably some more. But they might say things, you know, oh, to follow Jesus, well, it better be entertaining. Right? Because I have a very low threshold of boredom. And so following Jesus had better be very entertaining or I'm just not going to bother with doing that thing. And then we'd say, okay, well, it also better be non-committal, right? Because I have a busy schedule and I have a lot of things going on, but things really change all the time and maybe something better or more entertaining might come up. I want to be flexible so I could go do that. They might say, well, you know, it better be something, following Jesus, it better be something that someone has expended a bunch of money and it's been very expensive and they're doing a very excellent job at it. Never mind how they pay for it, but it's got to be very expensive. It's got to be excellent. So, so many people in America, there's, they've lost this recklessness and have just said, hey, it's got to be sort of these things. And unfortunately, so many churches have kind of said, okay, well, that's what people want. That's what we're going to give them. And so they aim for these things. Now, I agree, it's good. It's good to try to capture attention. Right? That's a good thing. We want to be able to capture people's attention. We don't want to just be, oh, you're just boring and, and that sort of thing. And it's good to be aware of people have schedules and people have lives and how does the culture flow and what is going on. And yes, it is good that you know, Jesus is worth expending our treasure and being excellent. But so many people, so many churches, so many Christians do this stuff at the expense of really following Jesus with sort of that reckless abandon. And now as I was thinking this through, I was like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I realized I probably shouldn't really be pointing the finger at anybody except myself. Because I think about those things and I go, wow, all that stuff, entertainment and flexibility and things being really excellent, expensive, I go, well, that stuff really appeals to me. Right? So I can't sit up here on a high horse and say, oh yeah, well, I don't do that stuff and all those other people. No, it's me too, right? And so I think maybe all of us could, starting with me, could ask ourselves that question. Am I following Jesus with reckless abandon? Is it the kind of abandon that says, I'm going to go to where he's at, a desolate place, and I don't even have the next meal planned, but it's Jesus, and I'm going to follow him. Are we doing that? That's a convicting question for me. Are his words, remember it's his words, his profound words, are they so meaningful to me that I'm willing to follow him with reckless abandon? It's very convicting to me. And I thought I wanted to share that. That's one thing I learned this year is I think as a church, and God's called me to help lead this church, I think as a church we need to keep returning to this concept of making our pursuit be Jesus above all else. 
Second thing I wanted to share, second thing I learned in 2018, I think as a church, our organization must be family. Organization must be family. You'll see here a picture of our friends, Tim and Julie, missionaries in China. And I had the privilege, of course, last year of going to China for a couple weeks to help out and be there with them. And hopefully, we're hoping they may, they're back here in the States and they got a bunch of family commitments and stuff, but we're hoping we can get them here on a Sunday um, in the next month before they head back to China. But I was thinking back through, okay, well, what are some of the things I learned while I was in China? And for those of you who don't really know what's going on there, there's a church. It's an underground church. We call it an underground church. And Tim is, you know, for all intents and purposes, the pastor of this church. And this church meets together, and I had the privilege of going and be able to teach and interact with people and spend some time with them and encourage Tim and Julie. And I could go through a whole slideshow. I did that before. I won't do that. But something that really struck me about that church was actually what it was not. It was not a building. That church was not a building. They didn't have a building. They didn't have a permanent home. In fact, they kind of needed to change locations somewhat so that you know, they weren't really attracting attention to what they were doing. And they continued to do that and try to find different places. And sometimes they do things like baptisms and they have to do it in somebody's bathtub. Right? So they didn't really have these facilities. In addition, this church, it, it really wasn't, you couldn't say, oh, the church is this activity or this set of activities because in, in that world and what they needed to do, everything was changing and they're changing their schedules. And even while we were there, one time it was a park. We went to the park and had a picnic. And another time it was a meeting in a classroom. Another time it was prayer in a pagoda. And it was these different kind of things. So you couldn't even say, oh, yeah, the church is this set of activities. The church was also not a business wasn't a business. They didn't have a logo. They didn't have any marketing. They didn't have a growth strategy. They weren't a 501c3. They weren't a business. Yet it was organized, and it was very clearly a church, even though they're very careful to say, oh, we're a fellowship, because the word church has these different connotations in China, and the government gets involved, and you don't want that. So I go, okay, if it's not all those things, how would I characterize it? And I, thinking back, I just go... It was a family. It was a family. And so you go to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and we've shared this before, talking about the church, the first church in Acts. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we look back at the New Testament. We got the whole New Testament, right? Jesus comes, and you got the first four books in the Gospels, and we have the stories of Jesus and what he did. And then the rest of it is, okay, now what? Well, here's what we do. And you go, oh yeah, it's the church. But you know what? There's one example, one concise example of what the church should look like in the New Testament. And it's this. These verses right here tell us what church should be. Now we get little glimpses here and there in the epistles and so forth of what churches should be. And you get to Revelation and you go, you know, we kind of learn what maybe churches shouldn't be. But this is the very clear picture of what practically should go on in a church. This is the example. I've said this many times. Jesus shows up. He's God. And he says, all right, I'm going to set up my kingdom and the organization 
to continue after me until I come back again. And he could have set up anything, right? He could have set up any sort of organization, but what he set up was this. This is what Jesus set up. And I don't know about you, but I look at this and I say, that sounds to me a whole lot like a family. It sounds to me like a family. I think it is. It's a picture of that. And yet, in America, we take this picture and we start to wrap it in notions of what? Building, activities, and business. But we don't see that here in this passage, do we? It's absent in Acts chapter 2. And I think going to China helped me sort of realize, like, oh, it's not that those things are bad. It's not that we shouldn't do those things. But that's not the essence of what church is. I think the essence of what church is, is family. And, and why do we do that? I don't know. Why do we do that in America? It might be because the call to being family is really hard. It's a lot easier to just focus on a building and focus on activities and focus on all the business stuff. It's a lot easier. It's hard to do that, and it's very sacrificial. That's what I think we're aiming for as a church. It's where we want to go, and we're going to keep pursuing that and exploring that and trying to figure out what that means. And if you're new here and you're kind of going, okay, well, that's maybe a little different, or okay, that's kind of cool. How do I get plugged in? I would encourage you, come to one of those gospel groups, because that's where you can really get tight into family with people on a one-on-one basis. And so that's something I learned. This is the second thing I learned last year is that our church needs to strive to be a family first. Third thing is that our hearts must be right. Well, that's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, our hearts need to be right. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse... Oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And so last year we we went through that whole series on Romans, right? Everybody remembers, hopefully, that we did that. A 29-part series on the book of Romans. And we probably could have gone more, but that's what we did. This verse was way back at the beginning, and this verse really strikes at our hearts. At least it strikes at my heart. I don't know if it strikes at your heart. Because we can be so angry, we can be so judgmental on our world, we can be so upset with our society and frustrated with our neighbors. And when we do that, we tend to forget that the things that we're probably frustrated with, we probably in some way, shape, or form are doing those very same things. So this verse tells us. And so in that series, we really tackled that. And we talked about, well, what should we do? What should we do? How do we get our hearts right? Because that issue of I'm judging means our heart is in the wrong place. And so way back early in that series, I shared four questions of self-evaluation. See if we have our hearts right. And I thought I'd share them again this morning. First one is this. If I want to get my heart right, do I believe that God's moral standards are true? Or not? Do I believe that they're true or not? And not only am I just sort of intellectually assenting to them, does my life show by my obedience to those standards that I believe they're true and good for me? Second question I can ask myself is, do I believe that God created the universe? Do I really believe God created the universe or not? That question and the answer to that question profoundly shapes our worldview, doesn't it? Third question we can ask ourselves is, do I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? That's kind of a black and white question. 
He's either the only way to God or he's not. And what that does changes the way we see others. It changes the way we see the world. It changes the way we see our mission and what we're called to do in this world. Answering that question is going to get our heart in the right place or not. The fourth question is, do I believe that only God is worthy of worship? We have to look at our lives and say, well, maybe I believe that, but how am I living? Am I living as if God is the only thing worthy of worship? So we want to ask these kind of questions. Let's keep asking these questions here in 2019 as we go forward. I think if we do this, we just are on that path of our church trying to make sure we've got our hearts right side up in a world that's really upside down. The fourth thing I learned last year about church is that our relationships must be loyal. I think we all kind of know this and we all kind of appreciate loyalty, right? came across this verse in Proverbs. Many will say they are loyal friends, but who can find one who is truly reliable? And again, we think back to Christians in America and there's so many, we've got so many problems. But I think for sure we've lost the value of biblical loyalty. I really think we've lost that. See, loyalty has been, that word loyalty has been co-opted. It's been co-opted by the culture, it's been co-opted by business, and now we kind of have to kind of conjoin it and call it either brand loyalty or consumer loyalty, right? You see, the traditional meaning, the original meaning of loyalty is this, giving or showing firm and constant support and allegiance to a person or institution. It's kind of what it is. But the way our culture really treats it is to add this at the end, while it is beneficial to oneself. Right? Well, what do I mean by that? I'll just give you an example. There's a picture of an iPhone. Anybody here use iPhones? I can raise my hand on this one. Yeah. Right? Most of us who use iPhones or Apple products are like, yeah, I love this stuff. It's good. I'm going to use it all the time. It's very good. When my phone wears out or breaks, I'm going to go get another one because I like it. Right? And people would say, you are a loyal Apple customer, Greg, because you like the products and you like how they serve you. But let's just suppose my phone wears out and Apple comes out with a new phone and it's a joke. It's a dud. Maybe it's shaped like an octagon or something terrible, right? And it doesn't work. It doesn't work all the same. Well, am I going to go buy that or not? Probably not. I'll probably become an Android user. So am I really loyal? If I was truly loyal by the original given definition of loyalty, I'd buy the dud and use it. Even despite the problems, and I'd look for the good, even though the things weren't perfect. So you go, okay, how does this apply to a church? Well, I think the American trend is that typical American Christians are committed to each other as long as it's personally convenient and beneficial and pleasing to yourself. And once it's not, well, it's time for some new friends. It's time for a new routine. It's time for a new fellowship. It's time for something different. And I would say, well, is that loyalty? Go back to the verse. Is that loyalty or not? I'd say it's not what God would call us to be as Christians. See, loyalty is tested not when things are convenient, not when things are beneficial, not when things are pleasing, but when things are difficult, when things are challenging, when things are uncomfortable. That's a hard thing. That's a hard thing. So go back to the verse. Many are going to do what? 
Many will say they are loyal. And the implication there is they will say that they are, but they will really not be. And we see this in the church family so many times when push comes to shove, well, it's not fun, or it's not like it used to be, or the music is too this, or the teaching is too that, or whatever it is, and then our tendency is, well, I'm going to cut and run and go do something different, and we demonstrate this very verse because we say that we are loyal and we are not. I'm surprised at how many people have come to me it's not just like one. It's a number of people have come to me and had a conversation. They've been coming to our church and being part of our church family and getting plugged in. And they say, Pastor, I'm so excited. This is my church home and I'm so glad to be here and we are going to be here. And I'm like, oh, that is great. Thanks. And we'll see you next week. And I never see him again. Like, wow. It's not even like, oh, I went a long time. It's like they say it and they won't even come back the next week. I go, wow, that's just where our culture is. Culture has got us so concerned about self-expedient relationships. That's how it just carries over into the church. We just want arrangements that are just for our own gratification. You go, okay, fine. So what does true loyalty look like in the church? What does that look like, Greg? What are you calling us to here? Well, here's a few self-reflection questions. And these are some hard questions. And I have to ask myself these questions and say, wow, this is kind of hard. And do I have true loyalty or not? So I'll just give you these hard questions and we can think about them. The first one is, when I think about my church, and again, we're talking about the family. When I think about my church family, am I more concerned with image and activities, or lack thereof, or about the people in it, and their needs, and the challenges they're facing? If you're concerned about the image and the activities, mm, if I'm concerned about that, I might be in this for a self-serving arrangement. I don't think that's what God would have us do. That's not the true loyalty he's talking about. Second question, if someone examined my life and they looked at my schedule, they looked at my social media posts, they looked at my checkbook or my bank account, would they easily discern love for my family of believers or not? I don't want them looking at that stuff. Yeah. But that's what expresses true loyalty because many will say, many will say they're loyal friends, but who can find one who's truly reliable? A third question is to ask yourself this. What conditions would cause me to break from fellowship with this family of believers? I was so encouraged by someone in our church, I won't say who it was, came to me and said, you know what, I'm going to be here I'll be with you unless you guys go off the rails theologically. <laughs> like I came back the next week too. I've right? been here a while. But it's this question we can ask ourselves and say, what conditions would cause me to break from fellowship with this family of believers? And you know what? There are a lot of good reasons. Even good things. You go, I got family issues or there's other challenge or things going on. Things happen. Tragedies happen. All these kind of things. And you go, yeah, maybe I do need to. But, you know, you can even break with that fellowship in a loyal way. It's a way you can do that. But so many times there's things of, well, I found a better job in another place. Or I just kind of got tired of this. Or I really prefer sunny weather to what Colorado has to offer. Or whatever it is. And we're off. And I would say, well, when that happens, are you reflecting a clear understanding of God's call to loyalty? God's calling you to that. I'm not calling you to that. It's just the verse. It's the scripture. It's God's call. 
So my encouragement to you is, man, reflect on these things. Reflect on this verse. Reflect on the truth. And it is hard. And I understand convictions aren't made overnight. But this is something, as I was looking back at my notes, I thought, wow, yeah, I think there's a call for us to be different, to swim against the grain of the culture because loyalty is God-directed. And I think it should be a key element of our relationships. Okay, so the fifth and the final thing, the last thing, that's the last thing, that's thing I'm going to share this morning that I learned last year is that as a church, I believe our aim must be growing together in Christ. We can aim for a lot of different things, but this is the thing I think God wants us to aim for. Ephesians chapter 4, I've got it on the screen, I'll read it. Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, and each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so we look at this passage in Ephesians 4 and we go, wow, there's a lot of great truths. There's a lot of great things we can apply, but I'm going to just focus on just one today. That's this. We are to grow up in every way into Christ who makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we talked about Jesus established the church. He could have set up anything, but he set up the church. Why did he establish the church? Why did he say first? Because the church is an essential component of growing personally in knowing Christ. You want to know Christ? You want to walk with Christ? You want to get closer to Christ? You can't do it alone. Now there's elements where you do have to choose and you do have to make choices on your own, but you can't do it alone. That's not the design. The design is to be in the church. You can't fully grow in Christ without being part of the fellowship, without being part of the family that is the church. Second thing is it says in this verse, it's the way others will be brought to Christ. It builds itself up. Well, it grows and builds itself up by adding others. The body grows when it acts like a body. That's kind of an interesting sort of cycle there. The body grows when it acts like a body. In other words, the lost are not going to be saved and added in unless we are growing together in love. That's why we're aiming to grow together in Christ. Because that's how we grow personally and that's how we grow corporately. And you go, okay, okay, it's fine. Well, what's your job, Greg? <laughs> Why are you and Brad up here? What's the role of the leaders? What's the role of our deacons? What's the role of the gospel group leaders? Why do we have to grow together? See, according to this passage, the role of leaders is not to do the ministry. I think that's another thing our culture gets wrong is it's, oh, there's this, sort of this professional working class that does the ministry and the rest of us just kind of hang around. That's not what it says. It says all of us are to do the ministry. Who's equipped to be doing the work of the ministry? The saints. That's you guys. That's all of us. So what is the point? What is the point of the leaders? The point of the leaders is to equip Everyone is a minister. Leaders are here to equip you. We're not here to feed you. We're not here to do ministry for you. Every single one of you 
as a minister, sometimes people will say that to me. They go, oh, pastor, oh, you're in the ministry. And I'm kind of like, oh, according to this passage, all of us who are following Christ ought to be in the ministry. I'm just here to help people be better at it. Somehow, not because I'm an expert, it's because that's what God's called me to. And so this is probably a perspective shift for a lot of us from what the rest of our culture says about what ministry is and how we should be there. I really think our aim must be that we've got to grow together in Christ. We've got to grow together and we're going to minister together. And so that's something else I learned this year. That our aim needs to be on growing together in love, growing into Christ. So I don't really necessarily have a whole way to wrap all those things up. I just say, well, there's five things for you that I learned. Hopefully it's encouraging to you. These are things we'll just keep growing in and pondering. And I'm glad to have conversations. Any of you want to have conversations, I'm glad to uh, sit and chat with you and talk about these things. Um, But we'll close for today and I'll pray. Yeah, God, it's my hope that we can take some of these things, each one of us in our lives, and maybe we look at them and go, yeah, I'm there. And then other things, we go, man, yeah, I'm not really there. And some things I go, yeah, I got that. And other things I go, wow, it's kind of convicting. God, it's my hope that each one of us, as individual ministers of the gospel in this body, would grow closer to you and grow into these things this year in 2019 and beyond. God, again, we don't know what the year is going to hold. We don't know what's coming up for us. But we do know that you're going to be with us. We know that you're going to help us. We know that you're going to guide us, that you're going to walk along with us. God, we know that you already know what's going to happen this year. God, I pray that each person would be encouraged by that thought. Help us, above all, to grow together in love as a family into Christ in 2019. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be right with you. It's in his name we pray this morning. Amen.